not being scared of uh, running these low protein diets, you know, and because he was, you know, you start balancing for amino acids and you're super scared. Like, oh, I'll get under, you know, 16% protein. And I'm going to kill production. And then you find out, oh, no, you know, it's, you're, you're delivering the right amount of amino acids. So get, getting over that, uh, it, be, being scared of that, being afraid of that, I think that's, that was a big learning curve. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia, its uncomplicated excellence, DSM, and AB Vista. All right, well, I'll go ahead and uh, introduce our guest for this podcast. Uh, Dr. Enrique Skolnick is joining us today. He's from Progressive Dairy Solutions. And uh, Enrique, I'm just going to let you go ahead and kick it off and give us a little bit about your background and tell us a little bit about you and how you got where you are. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a veterinarian, uh, dairy veterinarian, it now uh, practicing being a clinical nutritionist. So I'm formulating diets on a daily basis and providing uh, nutrition and management consulting services for our clients. I'm part of a, a large group where uh, altogether 43 nutritionists with a mixed background of PhDs, master's, bachelor's degrees in, in nutrition and other fields. And uh, we work in the United States, uh, Middle East, and um, we have a, a group of uh, five in Argentina, uh, one in Chile. Uh, so we cover a, a, a wide part of the United States. I think we're currently there, pretty much every dairy shed in the United States, plus internationally a little bit. And um, I grew up in Argentina, uh, working with uh, dairy and beef cattle. And then I moved uh, to the United States when I was 19, went to University of Illinois for my undergraduate in animal sciences, and then uh, went on to veterinary school at University of Illinois as well. Moved out to California. Uh, to uh, mix uh, animal practice in 1998 and uh, focused mostly on dairy. Uh, we had nine veterinarians at that practice. And in 2008, I, I was the fourth uh, nutrition consultant for Progressive Dairy Solutions. And uh, we've grown as a group from there. Wow. So a few years ago. Yes, a few years ago. <laughs> so you're in the you're in the car or the truck this afternoon, it looks like. Uh, what you got going on today out there? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm, I'm always in my truck. I do. I drive, uh, you know, about uh, four thousand miles a month, and uh, mostly work in the in the Central Valley of California, up and down the valley. Um, I work with a number of dairies, and uh, my days are, I, you know, pretty uh, uh, pretty similar. You know, I, I typically uh, go to my dairies in the morning, and I do a routine visit walkthrough, and then. Um, we uh, run our reports and numbers and see where we are and what things we can improve from one visit to the next. Um, and then once a month, uh, we close all our numbers, both on uh, you know health, um, reproductive performance, uh, fresh cut performance, and also financials. So we actually close each month on cost per hundred weight of production. 
and we use uh, 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 we we use money corrected uh, uh, hundred weights uh, to close our month on uh, on 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 our uh, income or feed costs and and feed costs per month. So. Do you have a good handle on how many cows you're feeding right now? Uh, Progressive Dairy Solutions, we we are feeding over a million cows as a group. And uh, personally, I'm um, uh, anywhere, uh, you know, around 30,000 cows that I can uh, service myself, that I'm servicing myself, uh, spread out on uh, around 20 dairies. That's a pretty impressive footprint. Yeah, and then I, I do a little bit of additional work doing a little bit of te- technical support for our other consultants. Uh, you know, each each one of us, if you look at all 43 of us, each one of us has like a, a, an area that we like to work on. Um, you know, obviously with my background in, in veterinary medicine, you know, I, I have an emphasis in reproduction and uh, fresh cow health. So a lot of times I get called uh, to do troubleshooting in those areas. And another big area of interest uh, is financials as well for me. So coming, uh, coming from a family um in argentina that was uh that is uh, uh, uh that is in the paper industry and business owners i've always been interested in um in in the financial uh, side of things so you said the paper industry yeah <laughs> so are you the dunder mifflin of argentina then <laughs> yeah i know my, my my family was uh since uh 19 since the early 1900s was in uh paper milling and still is in argentina so- how do you end up going from uh, the from the paper industry to getting a an interest in animal science and ending up where you are? So I was lucky enough that I uh, that I grew up uh, at a you know going to a couple ranches uh, that have beef cattle and uh, one had an eighty cow dairy, and um, I spent a lot of time growing up uh, there because that was my favorite place to be, and uh, and I was also lucky enough to not have to work. Uh, uh, it, it some of the family dynamics in the in the in the paper mill, so I kind of uh, made my own path in uh, agriculture. And I do it. Yeah, I love that. We have a lot of I I have a teaching partial teaching appointment here at Iowa State, and we get a lot of um, we get a lot of students who don't necessarily come from farm backgrounds. Um, and I always tell them I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I always tell them it can be an advantage and a disadvantage too, and just growing up on a farm can be the same way it can it can be it can be a good thing and also sometimes you have blind spots because of it so i think it takes all types but kind of my philosophy on that anyway that's a neat story i like that absolutely absolutely i was lucky enough to get exposed to uh beef ranching and 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 dairy at a you know when i was uh you know nine nine years old and and older so i was i was lucky in that way Nice. So you mentioned that Progressive Dairy Solutions does a lot of international work. Do you personally get to do a lot internationally? No, I don't. I do enough traveling here in the United States that I I, I get my fill of uh of of uh of flying. Um, I I um I go uh, to Argentina. Obviously, it's a, it's a good place for me to go because I I still have my parents down there. So I do do a little bit of work down there with uh, our guys down there, uh, guys and, and gals down there. But um. Um, yeah, I, I, I try not to, uh, not to travel further than, uh, or a different direction than the United States or Argentina. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. So one of the things that you mentioned that, uh, that you mentioned also that you're really, uh, involved in the financial side and financial benchmarking. 
So one of the things you mentioned to us beforehand was that you're really passionate and excited about talking about improving production efficiencies. Um, so I was wondering if there, with the, across the dairies that you work with, are there any commonalities that you see there? Are there any things that, that you see as kind of a common thread among dairy farms when you're looking to improve production efficiency? Yes, and I was thinking of those themes when, you know, before we were getting on the call today. And, you know, if I, if I can, uh, you know, divide them into big three, cat you know, three big categories, you know, one, one uh, being management-related, uh, uh, you know, opportunities that we see sometimes at dairies. Um, then the other one would be um, uh, uh, feed qualities, uh, you know, of both forages and grains. And, um, and the other one will be uh, ration design and the type of technologies that we use to balance our diets. You know, if I can divide up those three things. And I'm, I'm actively involved in all three of those areas, you know, we are teaming up with uh, my clients. Um, so, yeah, those, those three areas, I think, would be the, the biggest ones that we hit really at every routine. You know, we look at all those three areas, management and um, uh, feed, feed quality and forage quality um and ration design out of those three which one do you think has the biggest impact on the most farms or can you pick yeah i would say i, I like to think that it's ration design because that's uh that's a lot of times what i get what i get paid for um uh so yeah i'm super uh that's a, a big area where I'm, i get super excited about um you know doing amino acid balancing uh making sure that we um we're down on our nutrients that we don't overfeed any nutrients, whether it's um, uh, overfeeding starch or overfeeding protein or overfeeding uh, uh, minerals and vitamins, you know, that we're, uh, we're efficient, that we, we don't um, feed anything in excess. And we also want to make sure that there's no deficiencies as well, right? So we want to be within a very narrow range. And we look up to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, people like Mike Manamberg and uh, Tom Overton to give us those guidelines. So, so what, what numbers we need to hit when it comes to uh, uh, ration design. Would you say, I know this is, this could be kind of a loaded term, um, but would you say that you feed low crude protein diets? Yes, I would say that. Uh, I, I actually pride myself on um, running uh, very low crude protein diets and uh, a little bit, of, you know, I try not to look at crude protein anymore. I try to look at um, uh, amino acids and look at uh, grams of the, the, the two uh, rate-limiting amino acids, where uh, are methionine and lysine. I try to look at uh, uh, grams of uh, um, methionine as a megacal of ME, and same thing for lysine, grams per megacal of ME, and then let protein fall where, 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 where it may. Uh, so I have diets that are sometimes under 15%, you know, slightly under 15% protein, and we're consistently running... Um, you know, if you correlate it to MUNs, we're consistently running MUNs between six and seven, you know, and uh, I, use, uh, I can do that. I can be that tight at uh, um, dairies where uh, uh, feeding precision is high and day-to-day uh, -day, there's not a lot of variation in MUNs. Uh, some dairies, I'm not able to implement uh, something that tight because the variation in MUNs from day-to-day -day is just too large. So some dairies, uh, you know, they may be between 5 and 11, right? Well, I know that the, the variation in immunos is so large that 
I need to feed some extra, uh, extra protein, extra amino acids. Otherwise, uh, on the days that they're low, they'll lose a lot of milk. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, that, that term low crude protein to me, it doesn't feel like the best term for what you're doing when you're amino acid balancing, right? Like we talk to, we talk to people about, you know, crude protein isn't really a, a real measurement. I mean, it's real obviously, but it's not a good measurement when it comes to, when it comes to rations, like you don't target a specific crude protein. We're targeting metabolizable protein, amino acids, all this stuff. And, and, but yet when it comes to describing what you're doing, a lot of times we fall back on that low crude protein label. Um, I don't know. I find it can be a little bit uh, of a misnomer, I guess, but. I think it's really hard for nutritionists to get away from saying, hey, let's stop looking at crude protein. Crude protein is, crude protein is not a true nutrient. Uh, there, there's, there's not, uh, you know, it's not an actual requirement for cows. Uh, but it's still, we're, it's so ingrained in our brains because we've been using it for so long that it's really hard to get away from. Um, so I always, I always keep it in my, in, you know, it's always in, in, in my view. Um, but now I use it more like how, you know, how low can I get and still get, you know, 90 plus pounds of milk out of these, uh, you know, out of these diets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you learned along the way? It sounds like you kind of have your amino acid balancing philosophy really dialed in. Um, but I assume there was some trial and error uh, in that process of, of getting to where you are now. So, so what, are, what are some key lessons that you've learned along the way when it comes to balancing amino acids? Yeah, you know, the, the, the very first one is not, uh, not being scared of uh, running these low protein diets, you know, because it was, you know, you start balancing for amino acids and you're super scared. Like, oh, I'll get under, you know, 16% protein. And I'm going to kill production. And then you find out, oh, no, you know, it's, you're, you're delivering the right amount of amino acids. So get, getting over that, uh, it, be, being scared of that, being afraid of that, I think that's, that was a big learning curve. Um, and then, you know, the quality of the rumen protection of those amino acids, always working with ruminants. So, uh, the quality of, of that rumen protected uh, amino acid is is really important. So learning a little bit about the, the different technologies that are being used to protect those amino acids so that they make it to the lower gut. Um, that's been a, a little bit of a learning experience too. Mm -hmm. Are you using blood meal at all? Uh, I, I, I was uh, all blood meal a few years ago until, um, you know, uh, Van Amberg, Mike Van Amberg came, came up with a, uh, He's, uh, I think he tested uh, 14 or 15 different blood meals, um, from uh, some from sources that he thought were really, uh, really high quality, and and they were at times they're very inconsistent. So the process that uh, how that blood meal gets processed is uh, um, uh, uh, it can be very inconsistent uh, as far as the heating, how those uh, how that blood meal gets heated and processed, where uh, some of those uh, some of them can get can get burned, and so you can have uh, you can have some of those proteins that be uh, completely bypassed. They they'll bypass not just rumen but the entire track, right? So, right, yeah. Uh, to be a support purpose of rumen protected, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> it's it's an animal protected, it's right? Like... <laughs> it's just really expensive manure. Exactly. Yeah, it's a uh, blood meal is one of those things. When it's good, it's very good, and when it's bad, it's really bad. <laughs> Um, but still expensive one way or the other, it turns out. So, yeah. So I just took out uh, the, the last uh, dairy I had on, on blood meal. Um, maybe a few months ago, I, 
I got it out and put it all on synthetic. So now all the dairies I work with are on some form of uh, synthetic glycine and methanol. No more blood meal. We do use some red blood cells, though. Oh, okay. How, how many farms are you using that on? Yeah, so 10%. So that brings an interesting question. I was talking to a friend of mine about this a while back. Um, thinking about, like, sustainability uh, of the dairy industry, right? And um, we know that nitrogen can be one of those low-hanging fruit when it comes to sustainability issues. Uh, and, and, you know, our, our footprint, uh, the nitrogen footprint, in my opinion, is very important, uh, probably at least as important as the carbon footprint, but we really focus on that carbon footprint and forget about the nitrogen side, not to get on a soapbox. Um, but I was, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine about, well, how many farms do we actually think are amino acid balancing? Do you have any concept of that? Obviously, 100% of your farms are. Um, but do you have any, any pulse on how many farms still, what, how many farms could be doing amino acid balancing that aren't doing it? It really varies from region to region in the United States. So our, uh, our group in the, uh, in the Northeast, upstate New York, I don't know if that's uh, Mike Manamberg's and Tom Overton's influence, very progressive. Those guys have been amino acid balancing for a long time. And then as uh, the further west you go, in you know, California, you know, it's always uh, in other areas considered to be uh, very progressive. Uh, well, when it comes to ration balancing, it's, uh, it's the opposite. So, you no, know, that technology, you know, if you go on, uh, to California or some part of the West Coast, um, there's still a lot of dairies that are running 17.5% crude protein diets with no amino acid balancing and, you know, running MUNs around 16 milligrams per deciliter, which is super high. Um, I know, you know, some of those levels, heat even starts having a negative effect on reproduction, et cetera. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just wasting a lot of protein. If you look at a, every pound of uh, canola right now, it's about 22 cents. Every pound of soybean meal is 27 cents. So right now is a great time to amino acid balance, you know, on, on low, uh, low grain, low protein grain prices, Maybe you can save seven cents per head per day. Now you're looking at double or triple that. So a great time to amino, amino acid balance. And you can gain efficiency. You can gain uh, repro uh, reproductive health and efficiency, et cetera. So. Well, especially with where milk prices are right now, too, and being able to capture, um, capture those prices. But everything's expensive, too, right? So, yeah, keeping your feed prices low is, is just as important. But. Yeah, yeah, and relative to the protein grains, you know, the synthetic amino acids haven't gone up in price that much. So that's why we still get that uh, a nice uh, return on investment on those. Has supply chain hit your amino acid synthetics at all? You know, no. The, the red blood cells, yes, but the uh, synthetic amino acids, we haven't had an issue. I want to take a step back. You, you commented about, you know, we don't see as much of this uh, nitrogen efficiency push out in California. That's it's really interesting to me because we think I'm from the Midwest and, you know, we always think of California as being so highly regulated in so many areas. And I'm sure you deal with that quite a bit as well. Um, that's just kind of fascinating to me that that the nitrogen side of the story hasn't really caught up with with the water and the carbon side yet. Yes. And, you know, a lot of that manure, we use it to fertilize our crops. Right. So so it does uh, get put to to uh, good use. So getting back to your top three. 
Uh, you talked about, we talked about rations quite a bit, but you also talked, to, you thought that management and, and forage quality or feed quality were a couple other big things that that producers can hit to kind of hit their production efficiency goals. So what things are, what things are not related to feed that, that you see a lot of people really needing to, to hit when it comes to enhancing production efficiency? Yeah, so, you know, being a veterinarian, I have a personal interest in fresh cow health. And if we, if we, um, if we, ca- if we can apply some, some basic management concepts to, to transition cows, um, we can have a tremendous impact on four-week milks and peak milks, uh, which, in, in, you know, in turn can have a, a huge impact on, on profit and margins at dairies. So, yeah, just making sure that, um, uh, it, that we have a good uh, transition cow program um that um cows are getting moved at the at the appropriate times uh the cows you know close up cows i, I do a lot of uh, uh close up crew uh employee crew training and um you know i always tell them you know you think that an emergency is when you see a cow bleeding out you know she she got a vein and she's bleeding out you know that's just one cow if you have close up cows out of feed that's worse. That's a lot worse than just having that cow, you know, with, with a bleeder that you need to uh, you need to take care of. Uh, you know, to me, that's an emergency. Cows, uh, close-up cows or fresh cows uh, without feed are an emergency. You know, because it will uh, will we pay for it for the next thirty days at least. So I'm curious um, because we get into these discussions around the office sometimes about fresh cow monitoring. Um, you know, I think that there is some truth to you can over monitor fresh cows, right? If you're keeping them locked up for too long and you're you're constantly manipulating them in the spirit of trying to make sure they're healthy, you can actually probably cause more problems than you solve. Um, so what are your recommendations when it comes to fresh cow monitoring when you're working with producers? So I, it's funny you bring that up because I, w- I was a huge proponent of fresh cow programs where we were temping every cow every day. You know, putting a thermometer uh, in each cow, uh, you know, bolusing cows, et cetera. And, and uh, you know, after a while, I realized that, you know, uh, what they teach us in vet school is uh, the, the first rule is do no harm, right? And when we were, uh, we were disturbing cows that much, uh, we were actually causing harm. So I'm a really, now I, I, I maybe I'm, I'm the opposite extreme, I'm a minimalist, but I know that if we, uh, if we don't have those cows locked up very long, we maximize feed, in, feed intakes. Uh, we have cow comfort dial in. We don't need to lock up those cows anymore. And to, to the, you know, maybe a, a little extreme, but, you know, some dairies were starting to remove uh, lockups from close up cows because we're like, hey, they, you know, the guys are too used to, you know, just pulling the handle and locking cows up. So we're taking, we're taking some of those tensions out and letting the cows do what they're supposed to do. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we're being successful doing that. Are your producers using activity monitors or rumination monitors or anything like that to kind of help with some of that hands-off monitoring? Yeah, for uh, not, as, not as many of uh, my clients. I know we um, uh, there's some here in the Valley. Uh, there's a lot more in Idaho with the uh, rotary barns. Uh, and the um, the management they do coming out of the rotary barn, uh, you know, for for us here we don't have a lot of rotary barns yet in California uh, compared to Idaho. 
so we do most of our management in the stanchions, et cetera. And, um, so the, there hasn't been as wide an adoption of, uh, of, the, uh, of the colors yet. Now I have a, one of my clients is uh, looking at getting the colors and, and um, 1500 cal dairy. Um, so he's looking into it. He, uh, not only for the, on the health side, but also on the reproductive side. Eventually he wants to be uh, 100% in vitro um, uh, reproduction. So that's going to help him uh, help him get there. I'm curious. I don't know what you think. I'm I'm curious to see in the long run when you talk about activity monitors and reproduction. Is there going to be a pushback from consumers on the hormones that we use for synchronization and for our in vitro programs? And is that something that we're going to be relying on activity monitors a lot more 10, 15, 20 years from now um, as a result of consumer pushback. I don't know. I, I wonder sometimes, but it's hard to predict the future, right? Yeah, that's always a fear, right? That that we're going to be over-regulated and not allowed to use a, you know, a great management tool. Um, you know, part of, uh, part of health, uh, a healthy cow is getting her pregnant on time. Um, you know, we make them as comfortable as we can. Uh, uh, you know, as an industry, um, we treat them you know, better and better, you know, we, we uh, always improve welfare, always improve cow con comfort. But yeah, part of uh, welfare is getting these cows pregnant on time so they don't uh, gain too much weight, um, et cetera. So it, uh, th those hormones are a, are a great management tool. They're, you know, they're, we don't use, uh, obviously, any, any um, uh, anabolic hormones or anything like that. Those are completely legal, have been illegal for a long, long time. The hormones that we use for uh, reproduction are low protein hormones, and they cause no harm to the consumer or to the cow. So, yeah, great management tool. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Hopefully, we get to keep it. Yes. So you mentioned when you're when you're looking at your friend, and you you do a lot of benchmarking with your producers, and you mentioned a couple uh, things that you monitor with fresh cows. With you said week four milk, week eight milk, peak milk. Um, I'm assuming that's a short list. Um, but uh, so what are you what are you targeting when you look at some of these different benchmarks that you use with your herds? Well, I'm going to pull out my uh, my little notebook here. I don't know if it's if, if, uh, if it's going to come out well on the screen, but it's uh, that's not pretty. But um, I don't know if you can see, but those are some of the things that I that I track at every routine. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you what, you know, some of some of the things that we track. You know, well, I'll be honest, that's not going to, I can see it real well, but it's not going to be real easy to see yeah. in a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, uh, you know, um, we track for fresh cow health. Uh, one of the, the, you know, kind of the, where the rubber meets the road number is um, how many cows uh, uh, we sell or die before 60 days in milk. Uh, that's really important because uh, you can't cheat that number. You know, there's, uh, if you, um, if you have a cow that exits the herd before 60 days in milk, she's most likely, you know, 99% that, that she's going to be in, in involuntary call unless she's marked as a, as a dairy sale. So we try to um, be under 8% on turnover rate on the 60. Um, you know, the, the, um, uh, my herds, you know, get as, as low as 4% uh, certain times of the year. Maybe they, 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 they get, um, you know, five, six, seven percent. 
but we definitely want to be below that 8% on, on turnover rate, under 60. Um, you know, we, we track all our metabolics like milk fevers. We want to be under 1% milk fevers, uh, DA rates under 2%, um, et cetera. So, yeah, keto, we track ketosis, percent ketosis, percent retained placentas. That's all for, uh, uh, so we close each month. So my first visit after the end of the month, we close a month on all those numbers and we say, hey, how do we compare to last month and how will we compare to this month last year, right? So summer to summer. Um, so that's on the, on the, on the fresh cows. Um, on financials, now we're, um, uh, some dairy, some, we're doing weekly fee costs, uh, fee costs per hundredweight. So we take how many, uh, how many hundredweights we sold that week. And uh, then out of the fee programs, we calculate exactly, we, we have an estimation of how much we spent for that week. And we can get a weekly fee cost. So right now, you know, uh, if we're at around $12 a hundredweight, uh, you know, we're, we're doing pretty good. Some days are lower, some days higher than that. But we can close each month compared to last month and, and uh, see if we're making or or close each week. Now I have days that we close each week and we may see a 20 cent increase. We're like, why, why did we go up 20 cents? Yeah. We ship less hundredweights, the production go down. Um, and, and we do it uh, both on an energy corrected milk basis. Uh, or better yet, we can do it on a money-corrected milk basis. Yeah, talk to me about that a little bit more, money-corrected milk. So somebody patented that, so I'm, I'm not sure if I can talk about money-corrected milk. Oh. Somebody, somebody <laughs> trademarked that. But basically, you know, um, we have energy-corrected milk, which has an adjustment for butterfat and protein. So say you, you, you produce 100 pounds of milk with a 3.8 and a 3.2, and then really your energy corrected milk is 105 pounds. Um, but each creamer, each processing plant pays a different amount for those components. Each, uh, uh, each dairy spends a different amount of money hauling their milk. So what we do is we take the final milk pay after all deductions and with the addition of uh, their component pay for that specific processing plant, we calculate how much is that per hundred weight, and then we take the money that we got paid, divided by how much we get paid for hundred weight, and we have money corrected hundred weights. And that's that sounds that's a pretty valuable tool. Yes, so that's a lot more accurate, uh, or 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 a little more accurate than calculating energy corrected uh, milk. Yeah, hundred weights. I'm gonna switch gears on you a little bit here. Um, I stalked you on LinkedIn a little bit before we hopped on. And one of the things that you listed, and you've, you've mentioned it a little bit in discussion here as well. Um, but one of the things you listed as a, as a area of expertise for you is employee training. Um, and in my opinion, that's something that's really undervalued at a lot of different, uh, at a lot of different farms. Um, so can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, what what's some of your philosophy when it comes to working with employee training? Yeah, so you know, um, a lot of times, you, you know, you can tell an employee, um, hey, make sure that these cows don't run off feed, these cosa cows don't run off feed. But do they understand why we ask them that? You know, which is to minimize milk fevers, minimize DAs, and do they understand if those cows? You know, we're designing those uh, like a close-up diet for 30 pounds of dry matter, but they eat only 20 pounds of dry matter. Then they only got two-thirds of the amount of anionic salts that they that they were supposed to get. Therefore, they're going to be at a high risk for milk fever. So, 
those the the employees uh, a lot of times don't understand what we're trying to do with diets or what we ask them to do the things that we ask them to do so e educating them in the science uh, uh you know um the science behind the things that they do uh it really empowers uh empowers them um it, to be um a more self um how do you say um no self motivated by self supervised right yeah um we can breathe more you know, invested we, we more invested in, yeah. in 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 what they're doing every day right so um education is um uh, you know education is so important and uh, uh ignorance uh you know it will never get us uh, any results so educating these uh farm workers um you know using whatever methods whether it's visual methods uh to train them uh, sometimes you need a lot of visual methods cuz uh, maybe they only went to primary school so using a lot of pictures uh really helps yeah, because they didn't go to primary school or because they only went to primary school, they didn't go to high school, doesn't mean that they're not smart. These guys are smart. They just, uh, they, maybe they need a little different teaching methods and, and, and utilize the, the whole of their intelligence. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Do you have any advice for, um, you know, English-speaking producers who may be working with Spanish-speaking um, employees? And I'm not bilingual by a long shot. Um, <laughs> Is that the best route? Is to is to learn Spanish, or are there are there uh, other things that employee employers can be doing along the way, uh, and in developing their language skills? Yeah, I mean, it would be great if um, if there were more uh, if we had more support to uh, teach him to uh, uh, to speak English, right? You know, I come from a country that uh, if you don't speak Spanish. Uh, you know, people are not going to accept that. You know, they're like, if you're in Argentina, you're going to speak Spanish. I wasn't talking about employees learning English. I was talking about producers learning Spanish. But... <laughs> oh, that too, that too, you know, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of my clients uh, have done immersion classes in Mexico, a lot of my uh, the dairy owners. So they make an effort to speak, um, uh, to speak Spanish. Um, but also we should be making an effort to uh, have these guys speak English. Why not, right? Uh, it, it's hard for them because, you know, at, at home, maybe they're only speaking Spanish, but hey, um, in, in, um, again, in Argentina, if you don't speak Spanish in Argentina, you can't get a job, right? So we're pretty lenient here in the United States as far as, uh, uh, these guys, uh, getting away with, uh, without speaking the language. Yeah. yeah. Are there tools that producers can use if they're, uh, because what you're talking about with with teaching them the science, teaching them the physiology, that's pretty it's pretty intensive stuff. And if you're um, you know, if you're trying to communicate with employees, it's hard enough just to get the protocol across sometimes, right? Let alone the why behind all of this. So is there are there tools out there? Um obviously you could hire uh somebody like yourself uh to work with your employees, but is there are there anything else that that producers can be doing to kind of enhance their employee training with with uh, employees that don't have English as their first language. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of dairies uh, or some dairies now that are that have onboarding programs, and uh, where they have to, uh, you know, go over uh, PowerPoint slides, uh, you know, both in English and in Spanish, um, and um, you know, even even with short quizzes, I sometimes have a short quiz uh, at the end of my schools. Um, and so yeah, so having you know having those uh, those powerpoints for a new employee, 
it's really important. Um, there's there's plenty of people in the industry that can can help producers um, make that that onboarding material. And we gotta think in those terms. You know, we we, we do have to be more progressive. Um, you know, the, you know, onboarding is a term that maybe we weren't even hearing about it in in our industry a couple of years ago, and now we're talking about having onboarding programs for a new employee, right? Um, that, that's uh, you can have uh, there's a lot of veterinarians that speak that speak Spanish, um, and they can do they can do some of those slides both in English and Spanish. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times I will have I will do presentations where I have the slides in English, but actually, so the, uh, the workers can actually see the English slides and then, but then do the presentation in Spanish or the other way around as well. So when a dairy owner is there and they don't speak uh, Spanish, they can also, they can, they can hear what, um, uh, what the employees are hearing, which that happens way too often where the, the dairy owners or the managers are not present at those training programs. And I think they should be present so they can hear the same things that their employees are hearing. Right. Yeah. So what are some strategies that you've seen with your producers that that work when it comes to retaining employees? I know that's a big hot topic right now everywhere with the great resignation and uh, labor has always been an issue and it's just becoming even more of an issue all the time, it seems like. So do you have any examples of things that your producers are doing that work really well when it comes to retaining employees? Yeah, I think um, one that we touched a little bit um you know, a while back during our conversation, you know, it's empowering the employees, uh, having them invest in the success of what, uh, you know, of the area, the area that they take care of. Um, you know, when, uh, when we look for solutions uh, or opportunities for problems, ha having, having the employees uh, be part of creating that program um, to improve things, and then they take ownership of the program, I think, that really motivates uh, uh, motivate those em those employees maybe even more than having a bonus for something. Even though they like that, but um, they like bonuses. Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, it, for them to feel part that they they're a part of uh, the success of the dairy, um, I think it's really important. Well, we've been talking for a while. I'm gonna throw kind of a curveball at you, if that's okay. Um, this is a maybe a little bit more broad question. Um, but what's something that you believe in pretty strongly that you think a lot of people might disagree with? Oh, I mean, us and balancing in California. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Let me come up with something better than that. Um, forage quality, you know, it's a good one. You know, I, I think the, the notion that all forages are created equal, you know, I, I'll give you these 30, you know, whatever, 40 pounds of corn silage and feed two cows and year after year, you're going to have the same results. But you know, year over year, that corn starch, even though it's, it has 30% starch, the, uh, there's so many other things that, uh, like NDF digestibility and other things that we're not used to looking at, uh, can make a huge difference. And, you know, as a nutritionist, um, you know, I've had issues, more issues with, uh, you know, uh, uh, communicating with clients when it comes to forage quality, probably than anything else. You know, and, and when we do have a forage quality issue, I think uh, producers are not that familiar with those numbers. I think it's uh, it's it's uh, challenging to uh, to communicate. And it's so important, right? That's the backbone of your of your whole ration. That's the that's what everything's built on is those forages. And if your if your base is if your if your foundation isn't where it needs to be, it's hard to build a house that works. 
was, I don't know if that was a metaphor that worked or not. But. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. No, it, you know, uh, and the tough thing with forages is, uh, is um, you know, after the forages in the pile, uh, if if uh, the digestibility is really low, there's nothing you can do to fix it other than feed less of it. So it's really hard, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, dairy owners have invested so much money and or they, there's, it's not like next month they can do a better job, right? No, they did a good job. They did the job that they could do uh, once a year. And then for the next 10, 12 months, we have to live with that. It's not like we can improve it again. You know, we can say, oh, in 30 days, we're going to do better. You know, no, it's done for the next 12 months. Yep. We'll come back next year. Yeah. I feel like we've touched on a bunch of different topics. Is there anything we missed before we kind of wrap up with, with three questions that we ask everybody? Yeah. I mean, we, we, uh, one thing is said, you know, we just came off a, a really tough week here in California with a, a huge heat wave. And I think that the entire West, you know, we had a, some extreme heat and, um, you know, some of the strategies that, um, that we use during that heat, maybe, um, uh, worth discussing, but hey, the guys that invested uh, a lot of money in heat abatement in the last couple of years, uh, those guys almost cruised through. And the dairies that uh, that that maybe didn't spend as much money in heat abatement in the last couple of years, uh, those dairies, you know, ended up losing a lot of milk in one week, right? And um, if there's cows that are, you know, long days of milk, those cows probably won't come back. Yeah, and it's certainly not going to get any cooler in the next few years, so. It's a good time to good time to invest in that if you haven't done it already for sure. It's time for famous three. Well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, and wrap up with three questions that we ask every guest. The first one is, what is your favorite dairy related book or resource? Uh, I still I still carry uh, for for uh, on on the veterinary side, you know, uh, on the health side, I still carry. Uh, my little Pasquini, um, a little reference book for disease. So I still carry carry them in my truck. I don't know if I have it. Uh, well, they won't be able to see it, right? Because this is. Uh... Well, the, well, this the the video is recorded too. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So here, uh, I'll, I'll I'll show it to you real quick. I have it here in my truck. Guide to bovine clinics. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great book, and it's very visual. You know, it has a, a bunch of visual aids. So I think I have some poisonous plants that I just opened the page on, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's all bovine. And, uh, and that's a, that's a book that I, I always carry in my truck with me. So this isn't one of the three questions, but I'll ask it anyway. If you get pulled over, what can you access quicker that book or your driver's license? <laughs> that book is, uh, it's easier to access. <laughs> <laughs> so you must not get pulled over. <laughs> Uh, or that tells you what's most important. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've been trying to be good the last year, but yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of along those lines, what's your favorite book or research book or resource outside of agriculture? So, um, you know, just something that maybe is uh, something that you lean on, um, but isn't necessarily directly related to the agriculture. Yeah, you know, one one is uh, a book called uh, uh, "Leaders Eat Last." Oh. Uh, by Simon Sinek, uh, a great book. And I, every once in a while, I'll open and read read ten or twenty pages, just to uh, to remind me of some of the leaderships I can do with uh, you know 
uh, uh, that I can, uh, some of the things I can use at dairies with the employees or even with the dairy owners. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it talks about, um, the, uh, you know, not looking at, um, uh, you know, winning uh, short term, but winning long term, uh, being generous um, uh, when you interact with people. Yep. So our last question is, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not as successful? Um, I think being invested in 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 the success of uh, of each client that you work with. Uh, you know, for me, all of my clients are dairy families. And um, yeah, for me, it's very important. I know that uh, that family that de depends uh, on some of the things that I do for their success, and uh, keeping that in perspective is really important. That I'm working with with a family. It's the so people. That, yes. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. I really enjoyed uh, having the chance to sit and chat with you, and I hope our listeners enjoy uh, getting the chance to hear some of your insights as well. Um, is there anywhere where people can follow or connect with you? Um, uh, I'm not super active with social media, but uh, Progressive Dairy Solutions has um, uh, has a, a Facebook uh, page, and then um, you know we have a nice website uh, uh, www.progressivedairysolutions.com, and uh, if you go to the team page, uh, all of our uh, consultants are uh, listed there uh, with email addresses and everything, and you can look me up as well and. Uh, you can send me an email or uh, our cell phone numbers are there if anybody wants to call us and uh, uh, we can in interact in those ways. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time uh, to have this discussion today. I've been seeing a skid loader drive around in the in your windows occasionally as we've been sitting here. So uh, I'll let you go ahead. It's a little earlier or yeah, a little earlier in the day out uh, where you are versus where I am here right now. So I'm sure you have uh, the rest of your afternoon ahead of you. And I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to visit with us today. Excellent. Thank you so much. It was, uh, it was great fun talking to you.